Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is David Pivtarak, who is an independent rights lawyer who was born in Soviet Ukraine and came of age in the free United States of America and has watched the encroachment of illiberalism across the United States of America and is taking a stand for that via lawfare. In this conversation, we talk a lot about the Civil Rights Amendment, anti-discrimination laws, and how the United States government is using using them to enforce its will on the citizens of the United States and the trade-offs between anti-discrimination law and civil rights law and individual rights and freedoms. If you are interested in more David, do check the links down in the description. I find him a really great guy to talk to, and he's a part of this series that I've been doing on the right wing or the dissident right, and so this fleshes out a little bit more of those who are fighting for liberties and for tradition in the face of a increasingly illiberal system of control. Without further ado, here is David Pivtarak. How'd you get into this saving the uh, Constitution thing? Was it always like a passion of yours, or were you a late bloomer into liberal defense? Professionally. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would say professionally, I was kind of a late bloomer. Um, my my instinct for justice, I think, was, was always there in terms of my professional life. But yeah. in terms of the political aspect of it, I would say that is definitely a more recent thing. Uh, but but, you know, personally, I, I, I've been I've been reading this stuff. I've been interested in it since probably probably high school. Yeah. Although, you know, my background is I'm I'm from Soviet Ukraine. I was born there. So I grew up with it. Pretty much my my entire existence has been political in some sense. Oh, wow. Meaning the edu yeah, the education was from a very early age. So you were uh, born in, in terms Ukraine. Of my personal interest. Soviet yeah. Ukraine. So um, to what degree did you witness the change from Soviet to post-Soviet? life i didn't uh we left we left about two years before uh before perestroika before the uh the fall of the regime so we didn't really see any of that hmm. i can't i was young i can't even remember whether this actually even started you know sort of the uh the initial phase of communism falling apart. I, I don't remember if that was even on the radar. Maybe it was uh, my parents, grandparents, probably hmm. be able to speak about it better. But in terms of in terms of what I witnessed, it was just the same old, same old. I think the difference was that it was that program that Reagan initiated that essentially traded us for wheat that allowed a lot of us Soviet Jews to come over. Really? Yeah, it was, it was this great refugee program at, that Reagan negotiated with the Soviets where essentially uh, the U.S. would get Jews and the Soviet Union would get wheat. Oh, wow. Okay. What yeah. was that program called? I have never heard of this. No, I, I don't remember the exact name of it, but okay. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you could find it pretty easily. Interesting. What does it feel like to be traded for wheat that's such well, a given, weird gi <laughs> well listen man given that i could be in a ditch somewhere uh, you know outside kiev right now pretty fucking good 
Wow. Wow. Do you, do do you have, um, are you conscious or cognizant of any, um, of like the influence of that lifestyle and your parents coming from, from that life to America and the translation for them and you growing up during that, has that had an influence on your family that you're aware of? Like their, uh, what do you mean in terms of, in terms of how we frame what we see is happening here politically? Is that what the you mean? changes in America now is one tact to take, but I'm just wondering going from a state of like being a Jew in Soviet Ukraine to being, mm. you know, just to being becoming an American and the way that life happens here versus there. And I don't know, I would assume there's quite a difference in that and in the culture and like watching your parents adapt to that might have influenced your childhood or I, I wonder if, if that um, what they instilled in you as values of appreciation in, in this way of life as opposed to Soviet Ukraine and the stories that they told you and the maybe maybe some of the trauma or just the, the you know the, like maybe they were bought they had to be bottled up over there and were able to be open over here and if that how that influenced you. <laughs> That's man. That, that's a lot. There's a lot to unpack, right? Yeah. Uh, I can't. I, I don't. I don't even know where to begin with that. It's. It's almost living in a different universe. I only experienced it as a kid, but I was there for the breadlines. I was there for the the destitute conditions, the poverty, just the the want. I guess you could call it. Uh, and when people complain about poverty in this country, it almost it almost seems silly in some ways. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are obviously areas here where you do see it, where there is just uh, people are you know deprived of everything and just don't have anything. And you have, you know, you have very serious poverty in certain pockets of the country, but the shelves are always full anywhere you go in this country, Hmm. right? Everything is available. I think that's the key difference Hmm. in this country. Really everything is available. It's just about having the resources or the capacity to, to acquire it Hmm. there. It was a completely different story. doesn't matter how, what your aptitude was, how capable you are. uh, Yeah. No matter how much money you have, there's nothing on the shelf. Mm-hmm. You're standing in that bread line. And unless you had a special in with the corrupt supermarket owner that had their own in with the Politburo, uh, you just, you weren't getting stuff. I tell the story all the time. Uh, it was wild when we came over here. Bananas were uh, widely available. I could get a banana anytime I wanted. And to me, that... It's just the one thing I remember as a kid, it blew my freaking mind because uh, my grandpa, because he was a World War II vet and he was wounded and was decorated, they had a, they had a program for disabled vets where he had these coupons that you can redeem for bananas, uh, like a bushel of bananas, I don't know, once a month or a few times a year. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but that was like, that was, that was the lap of luxury for us. And because he had that specific in, that gave us access to this thing that nobody else had access to. And then coming over here and just being able to go to the store, 
get a get a bushel of bananas anytime you want just seeing them rot uh mind-blowing yeah orange juice pizza i mean it's you know steak any of that stuff so you go from that environment to something here uh you really learn appreciation i think that's why you see uh cuban americans in in miami and everywhere else why are they so rapidly patriotic because they've seen what the other thing leads to mm-hmm. and same thing you know the most the most conservative patriotic people people who love america more than anyone else are usually people who come from communist countries mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that because they've lived through the alternative mm-hmm. right and they see they see that for all its flaws and things that can be corrected the alternative is just way worse and so that was that was from a very young age that was basically drilled into my head yeah this is a a completely other topic it's a really big topic but this number keeps on popping up in my newsfeed on twitter like there's seventy thousand homeless in la right now like there's this massive amount of homelessness and encampments and stuff like that yeah in america i'm wondering if you have a perspective on that i know and this can go in all these different directions about policy or you know yeah but if, if you're talking about like soviet union and the inability to get resources no matter what and then we see rising homelessness in these uh, very liberal states in america what we call liberal states in America is that like, do you, what do you, what's the perspective on that? Is that a failure of the elite? Is that a failure of the American system? Is that a, like a voluntary thing on behalf of the homelessness or the homeless or the houseless or whatever they're supposed to be called now or whatever I'm supposed to call them now? I know there's a lot of different <laughs> factors there, but if you're looking at, if you're just thinking about Soviet Union and the paucity yeah. uh, that you guys were experiencing and then what's happening in America now. It's got to be kind of mixed emotions going on, on what that problem is manifesting, what that's showing us about how we're living now. I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think there's sort of too much to be made about that connection. You know, my, my personal perspective, and this is just from looking into it, reading about it, and living through it is the fact of the matter is, if we uh, if we didn't have to live through those ACLU inspired Supreme Court decisions back in the you know back in the '60s and '70s in those Berger and Warren courts and the um, and the ending of involuntary if involuntary uh, Putting people in the uh, in the institutions, right? Okay. If um, we didn't mental have any institutions, of that, the disbanding of those, which is also another yeah. Reagan policy, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah, fairly. Yes, that was that was one one of his. I think when he was when he was uh, when he was in charge. So he's he's definitely not kill free and all this. But uh, but you know you can't you can't have involuntary confinement, legally speaking. Right. So even if there's this person right outside my window, which you, you probably will hear at some point, uh, screaming his head off and threatening people, you can't confine them. You really your your hands are tied. And that's uh, hmm. there's there's a lot going on here. Right. The yeah. money that's being pumped in by the NGOs for the uh, homeless industrial complex. 
that is raking in billions of dollars. I mean, California just put in $50 billion to, for God knows what, apparently it was to, to house these people, but I don't know how many units have actually been built. It costs about a million dollars to build one housing unit for these people, right? So there, there's an entire industry built on keeping these people on the street. Why is it that LA has more homeless people than anywhere else in the entire country? Why, why are so many people here? Because there's an entire industry set up for them that A, legally allows them to be on the street, but also B, uh, allows them limitless access to drugs without any repercussions, hmm. right? So if we change two things, if we have involuntary confinement, if we bring that back, and two, if we start arresting these people, prosecuting them, and making them personally responsible, right? Like you can't, if you want to do drugs, get a job, get a house, right? <laughs> that should be a requirement. Uh, you should you should you should be allowed to or you should be required to show a certain amount of self-sufficiency than do all the drugs in the world like i'm super libertarian about that if you yeah. can if you can act like an adult do all the drugs in the world but uh if you if you remove that right if you remove the people who are just straight up junkies and the people who should be confined in a mental institution 90 to 95 percent of the homeless in the city disappear because almost none of those people are actually from this area. They all none come of them there because they can do whatever they want. Because that's it's Mecca. Yeah. If you're homeless and you want to you, you want to live on a tent on a public street and just shoot fentanyl all day, this is where you go. Or San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or Seattle, right? Yeah. You know, not yeah. too familiar with it, but yeah, from what I hear. Very much so. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we were, I was just uh, at a party and um, some witty guy was talking about how uh, you'd get uh, arrested or harassed by the police for setting up fireworks. But if you said, well, I stole the fireworks and I'm doing fentanyl, the police would leave you alone, right? You can do whatever you want, but if you're an upstanding citizen, then you're police. You're the one who is cracked down on um, for celebrating your country or, you know, for being a dick with a bunch of M80s or whatever, you know? There's a sliding scale, but anarcho tyranny, right? Yeah, it, it is anarcho tyranny, and that's a cool concept. Could you explain that? Because I think that um, my audience would, you know, like a refresher on that. But it's it's a really interesting concept, and we can tie it back to our conversation. Can, yeah, yeah. Um, shoot, I can let me try because it's put been, you on the spot. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while since I since I really dug into it. But essentially, the concept is that uh, the powers that be in, in jurisdiction or in the country in general. Uh, basically, what what they do is they allow criminals to run rampant, and they have a hands off policy with criminals. But as soon as law abiding citizens step out of line, or try to defend themselves or protect their property, uh, they're the ones that get punished. And there's there's actually I, I hate to bring it back to this again, but uh, you know uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, mm -hmm. the Gulag archipelago, archipelago, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he he had a great quote in that book about uh, the Soviet cops. Uh, you know, if they if they catch a criminal with a knife, they let him go because for a criminal he doesn't know any better. That's his tradition. Hmm. But if you, as a citizen, 
get caught with a knife, you are, uh, you should know better. You're an insurrectionist. Yeah. You're a criminal. Yeah. And that's, that's basically where the concept of narco tyranny comes from. Yeah. It's putting, putting the law abiding citizen in this, uh, sort of chaotic, fearful mental state, creating a dependence on the state itself because you can't protect yourself. Like we saw with, uh, Daniel Penny in the news, the, you know, the guy in the subway who tried to protect himself and, and other people, yeah. uh, bunch of, bunch of stories like that, where they let, they let criminals and homeless run rampant attack and steal for people. And as soon as they defend themselves, the state comes down, uh, because the state reserves for itself, the power to police everyone, yeah. but at the same time, their hands off on policing because yeah. they want, they want you scared. Uh, they want you dependent on them. Yes, De exactly. Yeah, yeah. Demoralization of the citizenry is one of the main elements of mind control. Yeah, there, there's so, so many. I don't different... know. Does that does that match your? I hope that was. Yeah, that that drew, it's just a good thing to think about because narco tyranny. If if we're if we're seeing something happen to our country. There's this growing, there's this growing destabilization, especially in the in the cities, and you know, depolicing and very selective policing in the way that you describe, where the middle class and the upstanding citizen and the productive citizen is being squeezed out and demoralized, and that's the bedrock of our country. That's the bedrock of our success and our wealth and our fortune is the middle class, is the is the moral individual citizen, um, and then the government is is playing these tricks on us and squeezing us out and doing terrible things to our children uh the public schools are now public indoctrination centers you know and and you see this ruling elite that are acting more and more like these corrupt i don't i don't want to say exactly like the soviets but it raises a question like what's going on in their minds what is going on in the mm -hmm. mind of the state that it's reproducing the conditions of soviet russia and then also whinging about freedom Whenever, you know, the Republicans or the conservatives or, you know, even the liberals stand up against it, like, you know, whinging about democracy, if you vote for this other guy, you're, you're voting against democracy, right? Yes. You know, like wrapped in, you know, it's it, when communism comes to the United States, it's wrapped in the flag and, and you know, screaming at a podium with red lights behind him, you know, Biden's <laughs> infamous, you know, and they're kind of proud of like being hypocrites and stuff like that. I'm just wondering from your perspective and especially as we broach the con or move the conversation into what you're doing which i want to call anti-woke lawfare or using the legal system to enforce civil rights to to bring our our american values back online and defend them against the ngo process or you know industrial complex against all these things i'm I'm throwing a lot of things out there, but I'm seeing a lot of similarities between the deep state or what, you know, what is basically the deep state, like the, this big bureaucratic um, marriage between NGOs, hyper wealthy elites and the government and, you know, Gavin Newsom and you're the mayor of LA, like they're all on board of kind of ruining our country in a way. And, and what, what's going on, what was going on in the Soviet era. It's yeah. I, so I have a working theory. Uh, hmm. I've been for the longest time. I've been meaning to post like a whole Twitter thread about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I just never got around to it. But you know what? I'll, I'll work it out with you here right now. Let's do it live. Let's yeah. <laughs> let, let's, we'll do it live. 
as uh, Bill O'Reilly used to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Just uh, talk it out with me. See, see if it makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think a lot of the a lot of the playbook and the tactics are uh, maybe quasi-Soviet. I, I would say it's got those leanings in terms of authoritarianism and the general mind fuckery and the dissolution of truth. So I, I think there's an mm. element of that to it, but I, I don't think it's entirely that. Uh, so there's this there's this German documentary called The Net. It's 20 years old. Have you ever heard of it? No. So it's a documentary that ostensibly is about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. It's supposed to be about him on the surface and that's what it that's the running theme essentially in it but there's there's a fascinating kind of background story on trying to explain what what happened to him and how he got to be the way he is and it goes back to him at harvard uh, back in back in post world war ii uh going on into the 60s in that era where psychology and uh, the deep state or uh, government involvement, let's say, in these psychological programs was going on. And it sounds like what happened was there, there was this combined effort after World War II to try to prevent the horrors of the Holocaust from happening again. And the concerted effort was a private public marriage to study authoritarianism, mm. to do a psychological study of authoritarianism. And at the time, the leading psychologists of the day apparently uh, tried to use the most advanced computer technology at the time to pinpoint exactly what personality traits are subject or lead to authoritarianism. And what, what they concluded, uh, freakishly enough, perversely enough, was it was a belief in traditional values, family, God, nation, things like that. And their solution to all that was to create this sort of um, global citizen, hmm. a, a rootless global citizen that had no connection to, to really to their family, to their country, to anything like that and someone who could be easily manipulated, someone who did not have a firm grasp of objective reality. Interesting. So this is, we're talking postmodern, in a sense, postmodernism, right? All that kind of stuff, uh, yeah. New World Order, all those things that have been making their way into the narrative, I would say, over the last couple of years. So that was their goal. Uh, what they were going to do is they were going to create this citizen who was, as we talked about, sort of dependent on the state, who could be manipulated, who had a very subjective view of reality, something firm. And here we go, critical race theory, queer theory, uh, these uh, no sense of boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can be you can be whatever and you identify no, as. No sense of judging other people's uh, yes. boundaries or behavior, like like this hands-off, like you do whatever you do, I'm, I'm not to judge you, right? Which is good to a point, but once it allows like shooting up on the street, then you're like, there's something poisonous about total tolerance. 
to the totalitarian of tolerance kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so their goal was to create this uh, completely malleable person, individual who would not as easily be swayed by uh, by populism or or really hmm. these sort of mag magnetic, charming individuals who tend to be authoritarian. Yeah, the strong men, and, the Caesars. And, and one of the ways that they were going to do that was with uh, hallucinogens, acid, right? MK Ultra. Huh. So there was this. It's widely believed that the CIA experimented on Kaczynski with. You probably heard that with with LSD. Uh, Whitey Bulger too, apparently. A lot of hmm. Manson. He was an MK Ultra. So a lot of these psychos, huh. yeah. And then they just let them loose. Popular culture. Go forth and prosper. They were yeah. They were MK Ultra guys, and and one of the ways, and kind of here's the the payoff. One of the ways that they were going to do this was hallucinogens, but uh, a big factor was technology. They were they were using the most advanced computers of the day to uh, diagnose these certain personality traits, and then mold them into what they thought they were going to be. But at the time, back in the day, they thought the mind control drug was going to be LSD or hallucinogens. What they didn't realize was it was fucking technology the whole time, hmm. right? Why do you think woke exploded really like after 2015? Because social media technology, that's really when, when it all took off. That's really the mind control drug. What is creating uh, these these horrible, um, you know, instincts and, and these uh, desires in like kids to change their sex or, you know, to kill themselves all of a sudden. Why are teenage girls feeling more suicidal now, you know, since 2015 than, than, than at any time before? Uh, you can point to technology, you can point to really social media directly. And so I, I think what these powers that be that are that are influencing this change in our society that are implementing anarcho tyranny and all these things, they took that that ball, that playbook, and they just ran with it. And they harness technology because who works with the the tech companies more than anyone else? Mm-hmm. The deep state, right? Well, they would be fools not Federal to. Federal government. The power, power can't just like watch this weapon or this technology come to be and not have a hand in it. I mean, they were they were there at the founding at DARPA and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the, that the Twitter files revealed a, a deep, um, you know, compact between the the ruling elite all the way up to, you know, the person who's in office now, uh, the resident of the United States, as he's called, and, uh, you know, the Twitter and, and uh, being anti-free speech. Well, this could be a good entry. There was, I just saw, yeah. and I didn't get to read much into it, but Biden is trying to sue, or the Biden administration is trying to sue um, for the right to censor social media. Um, 
and and they were they were a judge said no you can't do that and they're they're going back at it again so it it seems more and more baldly evident that the government wants to restrain our freedom of speech online um and just openly like you know we we had the patriot act and then we had edward snowden and there was a big revelation it shouldn't have been it's obvious that that's what they're going to do um but now they're just openly like no we need to control speech we cannot allow people freedom of thought because that will ruin democracy i guess that's their thinking um I'm wondering to what extent you're involved in that or like how targeted, how can we use the law, which is kind of an extension of government that was created to restrain government against the government uh, to, in order to preserve justice, to preserve freedom. And how, how have you like come upon uh, or gotten into that work and what, what's the landscape there and what's the hope uh, or the dangers that, that are existing on that level? Yeah. Well, the Constitution basically provides, or theoretically, is supposed to provide that protection. Yeah. But I think, as we've seen, it's crucial that we get the right Supreme Court justices on board, because, like in that uh, mm-hmm. in that Harvard, North Carolina decision, with the with the affirmative action in college admissions, you know, you saw there were there were three justices who were completely willing to disregard all the numbers, all the evidence, and who, who essentially openly said, yeah, it's it's okay for the government or for entities to, to pick beneficiary races and then- mm-hmm. races In order to fix past discrimination, subject. we need to implement present discrimination. In order to prevent future discrimination, we need to, you know, or present discrimination, we need future discrimination, which is a line from Kendi's uh, book, Abraham's Kendi's book. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, essentially, the the opinion was candy yes because because the the reasoning was essentially racism exists in society, so we're allowed to discriminate mm-hmm. with no end in sight, with no parameters, no guardrails, nothing like that. Just on faith that it exists, and we're going to do the right thing, and what we're doing is the right thing. Discrimination is the answer to discrimination. Fight leave it, yeah. Fire. Leave it to the experts. Yes. Okay. That was deferred to the experts on that. That was that was hmm. the the main the main really? gist of uh, Jackson's. Yes. Okay. Well, and what does that mean? Yeah. Who are these experts? Who chooses the experts? Who who experts the experts? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's... Who 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 legitimizes the experts? Well, the experts legitimize the experts, right? That's uh, yeah. That that was that was Thomas's critique. Yeah. Where he just yeah where he just uh, went after her for it because he said. That's, you know, it's, uh, hmm. it's endless. There's at that point there, there is zero control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the constitution really is, is the one document, right? It's that unique single thing that prevents our government from doing all the things that governments around the world yeah. have done and are doing. Yeah. Like our neighbors and, to the north. Canada I mean, doesn't have free speech. According to the dissident right uh, or, or elite theorists, the Machiavellian right um, right now, um, they, they, they're really honest. They say, yes, this constitution thing is a wonderful thing, but it's just a document. It doesn't actually, in, in effect, it doesn't exist. It doesn't have any power. We are not living under the rule of that because it's not being implemented. And then when you see the Supreme Court implement it, 
then they are immediately de delegitimized by that huge complex, by all the NGOs, all the Democrats, all the all the the entire state just says, well, we, we just need to disregard you. AOC, for whatever she's worth, came out and said, well, we just need to ignore them. If they don't do what we want, then we just ignore them, right? If, if they try to implement this constitution, what we do is ignore it. So without enforcement, there's no legitimacy. Like, in effect, yeah. there's no legitimacy. So how do we... How do we preserve the legitimacy of the court that's acting in, in uh, you know, in alignment with the Constitution? That's that's the scary question because, yeah. like, like I just said, if if Trump didn't get into office when he did, mm -hmm. if it was Hillary, not Trump, if Mitch McConnell didn't hold up, uh, uh, what's his name, um, the AG. Uh, why am I blanking on his name? Hmm. Uh, anyway, if, if he didn't hold up his nomination, we'd have a much, much Bill different Barr? court right now. No, no, no. It was uh, Merrick Garland. That's okay. Garland. Okay. Merrick Garland. Yeah. Yeah. The, the AG right now. So uh, before, before Trump got into office, Mitch McConnell held up uh, the Garland nomination. Okay. Saying, yeah. Why don't, why don't we let, we're about to have an election the people should pick who the next nominee is. If RBG didn't die when, when she died, if all these things didn't happen, the the makeup of the court would be much different now. And that thing that you said that the dissident right talks about, that it's just a piece of paper, uh, in some ways they're 100% they're right. Because if it, <clears throat> if the state being able to discriminate, if the state being able to suppress speech really depends on the makeup of the people who are on this court, then yeah, uh, it's, it's not great. But at the same time, what's the alternative hmm. to have a strong man in power? Because that's, as okay. I understand it, that's, that's the counter argument. And I'm a Caesar. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like Garvin, in, uh, what Trump uh, promised to be, but actually didn't have the capacity to be somebody come in there, um, dis disband all the three letter agencies and start, just restart the government. Kind of like what Elon did with Twitter, just cut out all the, all the gr graft and the grift. Yeah. And just like, what is the government essentially, what is it supposed to be? And we're going to recreate uh, the government in the modern world, according to the constitution principles. Yeah. Which is, that's a great idea. And in, in some ways it is doable if there's a strong, strong enough executive in power. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't strip down the NGOs. They're private entities. They don't disappear. Hmm. It doesn't strip down okay. the, the, shadow the Democrats in Congress and in the Senate. It doesn't, yeah, maybe some of the federal agencies don't exist, but they're not essentially the ones doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah. They're not the ones writing the policy that are then signed off on by the uh, Congress, right? Like all these lobbyists yeah, the, are the ones who actually- Or, or the corporations. Yeah. And the corpse. Yeah. Because they're, they're complicit in it too. So what are you going to do? You can't, right? Uh, you can, you can have a strong executive, but he's not in charge of private corporations. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree. I agree with the with the philosophy that the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, it's just a piece of paper. 
but literally anything is just a piece of paper if you don't have the guns or the wherewithal or the power to enforce it. So in a way, yes, it does come down to power. But of course, that also has its limits because the corporations and the NGOs and these federal agencies and the deep state, right? Uh, I, I don't, yeah, I, maybe the executive can come in and sort of dissolve or weaken the deep state, but, uh, you know, well, Kennedy tried to do that and we saw what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, you're presenting a very a lot of guys did, but but it, yeah, cynical I'm just picture. I mean, well, you're not cynical, but like this is a yeah. like the deck is stacked. It it certainly is, and I I'm not sure that Caesarism or uh, as much as I respect Yarvin and uh, love a lot of his insights, I I don't think I don't think I've heard an adequate explanation for what happens when it's not your Caesar who's in charge yeah but but they're caesar yeah yeah well they don't need a caesar because they're all they're all in in lockstep and and like you're saying you're pointing out that power is beyond government right and and what we see with the internet and these internet giants they are much bigger than the government right so the government has to be involved and pressure them as much as it can to keep you know itself in line with them so if they aren't ruled, if we are ruled by these unruled, unaccountable entities, like what is even the law? Like, I guess, why fight then? Like, where is mm. the foothold? How do we fight? What do we fight for? How do we organize? How do we live within it if, if it's just going to go on? How do we, how do we preserve these, these values and keep, keep ourselves held together and, and actually believe in that flag behind you? I think for me, at least it does start with the constitution Okay, and, and it does, it, it does start with being, uh, being faithful to it and doing everything in your power to maintain faithfulness to the reading and to the values and the promises that it dictates. Mm -hmm. So, so really, uh, it, you know, it it does require lawfare while we still can, right? Mm -hmm. While we still have that Supreme Court majority, then it requires doing everything in our power to cut back a lot of the uh, a lot of the excesses that we're seeing right now. So so yeah, it does it does involve doing what Trump promised to do, but couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Cut down those agencies, NDEI. Uh, cut back a lot of the administrative powers, right? The the Chevron Doctor, which I think the Supreme Court is about to take up, which allows the agencies almost unlimited power to essentially legislate. Could you could you right? give These like the details of that? Is this about the FDA and and the power of the FDA to to make up its own laws? I know I, I read something about that. It's it, it's sort of connected, but uh, so Congress gave these three-letter agencies certain powers to create regulations on on issues that Congress didn't legislate on directly. So there's yeah. So it gave them it gave them certain, certain 
well, yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's what's been a big fight this entire time. And of course, when you give them an inch, they're going to take that mile. Yeah. And the the regulations that they've been allowed to promulgate have expanded and expanded and expanded until they're basically taking over the congressional role. So they're some of the more conservative members of the Supreme Court have been trying to pare that down to basically tell Congress, like, hey, you can't just delegate your duty uh, to these unelected, unaccountable agencies. If you want if you want a certain law, if you want a certain policy to go forward, write a law, make sure everyone agrees, because it's a it's a huge workaround to actually having people vote for policies that they agree with. Why do you think the laws don't get, uh, why do you think there's such gridlock in in Congress? Because you can't, you really can't get people to agree on these huge sweeping policies. And that's a good thing. So I think creating more gridlock in the hmm. federal government, just in government in general, is a good thing. So that's, I think that's that's one way to slow them down. But yeah. Where where, hmm. where do we start talking about? So, uh, so, yeah, so Chevron doctrine. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 one way to decrease or disempower a lot of these excesses that the government and these other quasi-governmental agencies yeah. have been uh, have been pumping out. You know, there's this concept, and I don't really know how to describe it, but, um, and it doesn't happen so much on computers anymore, but these programs would, uh, you know, especially Microsoft, uh, you know, uh, Windows, there would be these programs that have these things called a memory leak, where the program somehow just started taking over more and more memory and more and more memory and more and more memory from the uh, computer uh -huh. until the computer would lock up. And it sounds like that's a power leak. Like, like they, they kind of designed this policy that has created more and more regulation, more and more regulation, more and more regulation. And it was just, it was just like hogging up more and more and more at the bandwidth of the entire country. Like the, the federal government just sprawling and sprawling and sprawling. And it just seems like it's this infinite loop um, where it's always going to be choosing the thing that increases its function to create more function for itself, um, which is similar to communism in 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 effect in once you have this centralized unaccountable uh thing that rules over itself it has no purpose other than to serve itself serve itself serve itself until there's no food on the shelves until like the whole works are, are really gummed up and you can see a lot you know if you're particularly paranoid or insightful depending on how you want to look at it you'll see you know with with how covid was enacted or covid was responded to like like government took steps especially in the west like the, the left coast every government like oregon washington and california they all took steps that would increase their power. Jay Inslee up here declared himself have, have he gave himself emergency powers and he didn't give a, give them up until a couple months ago, like far beyond what he needed. And every step that he took was to increase his, his administration's ability to control the lives of the citizens, you know, to, to protect the, the citizens. But it always, like it always favored having more power over itself. The constitution is there to limit that. And and it seems like it, it's all it's all it's been worked around constantly at every step. 
So I, I just don't know if it's human nature or government's nature or power's nature to completely just ignore this concept. And if it's even naive to believe that, that the Constitution could affect any change other than these small little victories. Mm. And, and I guess to counter that, like we can do these targeted um, attacks on power to limit it, to, to cut off its toes, to, cut, to try to cut off one of its heads. But the fight will be continual. It will never, there will never be an end state. It will always be a constant struggle against. And I think that, you know, conservatives, broadly speaking, are wooed by these small little victories, wooed by these little book bans, wooed by these little transgender laws, um, or all these different like culture war fronts. Like there's like, oh, we got this victory. Bud Light is now lost a bunch of stock or Target lost a bunch yeah. of valuation. But it's like, it's it's kind of like the the state of nature is that power like the leviathan is going it's just to mount an attack on it is such a long process so i'm just like it's easy to give up hope or or to to set your sights so low that you don't really understand that the fight for justice is a continual thing yeah painting a pretty dark portrait here aren't yeah we? yeah i am so <laughs> i i'm trying to uh, bring that up in order to say where is the hope what is the practical path forward from your point of view i think it's just what you said you got to keep fighting uh, if you look at it historically speaking has there ever been a nation a country any anything like that uh that has been as relatively free and prosperous for as many people as this country has right i think that's that's the glimmer of hope uh we're we're really working without precedent here historically hmm. there's there's never been an experiment uh, a nation a national experiment with our constitution with our set of ideals and systems that the founding fathers created in the history of man there's nothing like this that have that has ever existed uh humanity's history is essentially what you described it's the rule of power Mm -hmm. not the rule of law of mm -hmm. certain ideals and stuff like that it's always been power and even even in places that that have these inklings of, of these certain ideas uh that is, it's always descended into barbarism or something where they've had to start over mm -hmm. so i think we have to keep an eye on the past but also think about how we're going to preserve what we have and that's by looking at what got us here hmm. look at the values that got us here look at the systems that got us here yeah. and try to replicate them and i think a big part of that is <clears throat> maintaining and outlining the core values uh, of the constitution right so speech why is canada falling apart why are parts of europe falling apart they don't have a first amendment and as they always say, the second protects the first. So I think our, our right, broad right to self-defense and a really, really broad uh, First Amendment, not just not just legally, but but culturally mm -hmm. to speak to speak freely and without fear that you'll get shut down either by by the government or certain powerful private so as long as long as that value is maintained 
And there's a, there's only one way to do that, and that's through lawfare, through okay. legislation and, and, and through lawfare. And I think as we've seen, when people have access, free access to, to information and ideas, they tend to revert to to more freedom rather than less, hmm. rather than to, to oppression, authoritarianism, what have you. Hmm. Generally speaking, it's not perfect, but... Uh, but it is a fight. That's why, that's why people like me do what I do, and that's why there, there are a ton of legal organizations, a lot of public interest groups whose entire focus is just fighting the government every time it steps out of line, yeah, and creating that precedent, and then taking it all the way up to the, the Supreme Court to vindicate or further bolster whatever whatever the power of that that individual right is okay because really that that's essentially what it is it's individual rights and fdr kind of started rolling us in, in a fucked up direction when he when he threatened to pack the supreme court essentially extorted them into ruling in his favor and a lot of this stuff started during his time uh could you could you expound on that of course yeah 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 so so in order to implement a lot of his policies, he had to violate uh, private property rights of individuals. Put forth all these public programs, he had to basically take away the rights and property of uh, a lot of citizens. And I'm not, I'm not even getting to the uh, Japanese internment. It really started uh, one, one of the worst things to ever happen at the Supreme Court's early 20th century decision, uh, Wickard v. Filburn, uh, the, the wheat, going back to wheat, uh, hmm. nice callback. So essentially ruled that a farmer growing wheat on his own land for his own private use was interstate commerce. Okay, and therefore under the auspices of the federal government. Precisely. <laughs> What's the reasoning growing. behind that? Okay. What, what was the the court's reasoning, or why did they why did they try to push through this decision? Both. How did they justify that? Why did they want this, and how did they justify it? Yeah. So the reason the reason they said it was it was interstate commerce was through a great great leap of logic that essentially said, well, if since you're growing wheat on your own property. That means you're not buying bread or wheat from from another farmer or from the supermarket or from the from the other dealer, and this means that the wheat that could have been brought across state lines or would have otherwise been interstate commerce, you're clogging up the system. Okay, by 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 yeah. not so participating like it, in the market. You're, we're going to punish you, basically. You're affecting, yeah, yeah. You're affecting the market. You're okay. substantially, substantially affecting the market. <laughs> so through that great leap of logic, that's how you have essentially anything being uh, falling under the auspices of the control of the federal government. Because almost literally anything would fall under interstate commerce under this definition, and this is this is how we got to the one of the biggest expansions of the federal government 
because now they can control what you grow on your land, what you do on your property. This is how they were able to pass the uh, the Civil Rights Act, right, which controlled how, who private businesses associate with and do business with. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you're a tiny diner uh, in somewhere in Texas, right? In, in a small town in Texas, well, you're affecting interstate commerce. Hmm. Because the stuff that you get shipped, the eggs, the meat, whatever, flour, that touches on some part of interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. And that, that gave the legal justification for passing a lot of this. And so... <laughs> After that, essentially, and that was that was a huge was just a footnote that that is a huge bane for this. The civil rights um, movement is a huge bane for this entire process of the state because it gives us a it gives it a almost uh, into the like you can't argue against it because it's so morally sound. Yes, it's so morally sound that people should be treated as people. And, and, and what they sneak in there is that the government should enforce people treating people in a certain way. That it, it, the government power hides behind this, this virtue, this really great American or just a yeah. great humanitarian virtue. And then, and then so the government's going to come in here and make sure that the populace is acting morally. And then it's hidden behind that so it can do whatever it wants. It can go infinitely, you know, into, into insert into, you know, into forcing people to bake cakes and, uh, you know, there was another one, this is kind of like a little seedy, but like there's this new nude gay resort that now has to like let in women. Like they can't have a private association for them to do their cockamamie fun times uh, without women present. You know, I don't know why a woman would want to be there, but you know, some women want to be there. And so now they have to have women there, but that's just, a, it just, it doesn't stop the government telling the citizen what to do. And that's really interesting. That goes from like the farmer growing his own wheat to the civil rights act, which is disbanding segregation. And then where does it end? Yeah. The, the road to hell is paved with great intentions. Hmm. And that's, and that's the problem. And that's the thing that uh, Goldwater was, was warning about uh, during his campaign when he lost to LBJ. That was one of, one of his great oppositions to the passing of the Civil Rights Act, which ostensibly was this amazing moral victory. Mm -hmm. Like how, like you said, how can you root against that? How can you root against uh, people treating others as equals human beings? Yeah, yeah. But, but in that Trojan horse was that element of government inserting itself into private life. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's how it starts. And if you want to talk about sort of unwinding this this process of government inserting itself in, into speech and just an everyday activity into association just, yeah uh that that's where it begins mm -hmm. is you have to you have to free people up to to associate and kind of do do as they please yeah and which includes Even if it discrimination has some shitty consequences yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah, I mean, is, which is unfortunate, but uh, yeah, well, know, I, the right, the right to be free means I the know. right to be a piece of shit. 
Yeah, exactly. And I know black uh, intellectuals, black speakers who, you know, if you look at like the, the consequences of the Civil Rights Act on the black community on a material level, if you go back in time and just flew a drone over the black um, parts of the, the country um, before the, what, what are those called? Those, uh, those free tenements that were put up, the projects were put up. They were relatively mm-hmm. successful, uh, independent, you know, like they, they were not as rich, but they were still self-sufficient and they were doing a lot better before the government came in with these programs. So the white people were shamed into, you know, like not segregating, whatever that means. And then, but the black people were, there was a psyop on that community and like materially they've not benefited from the government, uh, insertion. And that's really uncomfortable to say, um, because it's such a moral thing that the civil rights act was intending to do. Yeah. And obviously the flip side of that is, you know, easy easy for us to say Hmm. right it's easy for us to say when you're not walking into walmart or wherever in in san isidro and they're like oh no not you you know get out exactly right so it's like okay yeah it's easy to say but uh but you know thomas soul says it all of life it's just trade-offs so what did this what did this trade-off get us yeah. Did did it end in and like you pointed out, did it end in materially better conditions for black people? Uh, doesn't look like it. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I just like I go back and yeah, I can't I can't rewrite history. Maybe that did. Maybe that was a necessary step for authority to come in and enforce that and enforce that attitude. But I just wish it would have been softer. I wish like it would have been uh, like kind of. And I guess it's manipulation on some point, just people kind of gradually like lessening up, focusing on race, like just kind of, it it seems like it could have been a natural process, but maybe it had to be been enforced this colorblindness or this, you know, like this humanic human universalism. Um, I don't know. So good counterpoint. Yeah. That that's the problem is we don't know. Yeah. Seems like, seems like it didn't, didn't end up in, where it was intended or didn't, yeah. didn't put us in the right direction. Mm-hmm. In fact, it almost put us in, in a worse place where now you have an infinite, endless justification for these giant institutions to keep discriminating. But now in reverse. Yeah, yeah. What what is some of the the work that you've done on that front, or like the the landscape on there on on kind of rolling back DEI CRT? Where are some of the weak points in this, and some of the advances that the freedom of association or the opposite of DEI, the the anti discrimination, the actual anti discrimination contingent is uh, advancing on? So the the re, that recent case that we just talked about, the SFFA case against Harvard, uh, that was that was pretty. Pretty huge, really. In, ter- in terms of, it was it was a narrow ruling, and I've seen a lot of people kind of get over their skis about its impact. Mm-hmm. But but I think it was huge in terms of the the court laying out where the limits are, and what we're not going to tolerate anymore. And the reason I I said people got out over their skis was because the decision was really just limited to college admissions. Mm-hmm. 
and what what the equal protection clause means and and how and how and where the government is allowed to use racial classification mm -hmm. but uh people a lot of people you know just even recently on twitter i've seen people talk about how it's going to impact the dei programs uh, for employers and things like that for corporations that's that's not what the ruling was uh, most yeah. people don't know this but there really there is no legal affirmative action in uh the private sector in employment law generally you know other than this like very narrow exception in an executive order from lbj's time hmm. that allows certain affirmative action in federal contracting beyond that uh, affirmative action generally is illegal in the workplace and i think the reason that people make that mistake and believe that that it, it's actually allowed is because uh, I like to ana analogize it to driving, uh, like driving on the highway. I don't know what your speed limits are over there in Washington, but over here, uh, speed limit is usually 65 on the highway. Hmm. But if you keep it under 80, they're, CHP, the highway patrol, they're not going to pull you over. So, and I've been told that by countless, countless cops, they're like, just keep it under 80, you're good. Mm -hmm. Right. And for for a very long time, the corporations have been operating under that rubric where they've been clearly driving over the speed limit in terms of affirmative action and DI and taking race into account in terms of hiring promotions, etc. But they've been keeping it under 80. Mm -hmm. And what happened after after our summer of uh, racial reckoning <laughs> in 2020 Mm -hmm. was kind of like what happened on the highway during the pandemic where you're you're driving along right you're doing your 75 or whatever and, and a guy passes you literally twice your speed and you're like holy shit like must be going 100 something mm -hmm. and there were no cops on the road during the lockdown so they got away with it yeah so one guy did it another guy saw it and was like hey you could do it why don't i do it and then everybody's doing 100 on the highway. And that's what these corporations started doing after 2020. One started doing it. They looked around. Hey, we're going to set some racial quotas. Nobody's nobody's enforcing it. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so that's what happened with with the companies is they saw that nobody was enforcing the speed limit. So they just went for it, even though what they were already doing was illegal. But now it's it's just blatantly illegal. And part of what I'm doing is hmm. enforcing the speed limit. Okay. I'm trying to pull all of them over. So a lot of the a lot of the corporations that that I've seen with with these policies that are very blatant, uh, we filed we filed cases against them. Like uh, I have a I have a class action right now against Amex that's going forward. I have a case against uh, Smith College. Oh yeah, representing okay. Jody Smith. You yeah yeah. You probably Shaw. Know her Jody Shaw yeah. Jody Shaw yeah. yeah yeah. Did I say did I say Jody? Well, so did I say Jody Smith? <laughs> yeah, but it was Smith College. So oh, okay. I just know her. Um, we're we're yeah yeah friends. Um, fart. so uh, so you're using the uh, a version of the Civil Rights Act to fight against the neo uh 
civil rights movement, right? So you're using precedent or, or the laws that dictate from the government that corporations, that private entities cannot discriminate based on race or enforce racial quotas um, to, to allay the advancement of racial quotas in the name of equity. Is that, is that the, the process by which you're advancing this? Yeah, essentially it's using, because Civil Rights Act doesn't really specify that it's for the benefit of only one racial category. Okay. So the law is that Title VII Civil Rights Act and federal anti-discrimination law applies to, to all races equally. Okay. And so we're using we're using those laws to to fight against either either the blatant affirmative action programs or the the soft quota and soft affirmative action programs that these companies are implementing because for a long time i guess they they just thought they could get away with it yeah because nobody nobody really was paying attention the eoc doesn't doesn't really concern itself too much with discrimination against white employees unfortunately mm -hmm. but there's there's a whole host of case law out there that says you can't treat white employees worse than black employees or Hispanic employees or, or whoever. And the case law is very specific in terms of when a company can implement any kind of racial classification or racial, uh, any racial considerations in employment. And it's very, very limited and pretty much doesn't apply to, to any modern company. Hmm. Okay. Is expanding that a good idea? Well, yeah, that's that's the question is yeah. do we do we go for just a, a complete annihilation of these programs or these laws in general? Do we do just a wholesale dissolution of them or do we do we use them against the people that are discriminating, uh, but in reverse? Yeah. yeah. And I think the, you know, the, the simple answer is, as long as these laws are on the books and you have corporations and government entities going the other way in employment and actively discriminating, uh, why are you going to fight with one hand tied behind your back? Okay. Yeah. How do you how do you undo this stuff? Hmm. while yeah while not taking advantage of everything that's out there okay yeah that's very yeah and, and, yeah and i wouldn't say yeah i wouldn't say we're really like expanding the the scope of what these laws say because the laws say what they say and when when we apply it in our cases it's usually not in the same in the same type of fact pattern or the same type of deliberation that pre-existing case law relies on. How is it different? Well, in, you know, in, in most of those cases, um, you're talking, you're talking about blatant discrimination by, you know, a majority white company or something like that against black employees where it's, it's fairly simple, right? But when the companies do it in reverse, there's a completely, hmm. not a completely different fact pattern, but, sort of a different thought process involved because when you look at it uh it's funny it's it's not 
white on black discrimination that the traditional case law has seen, but it's kind of mostly white on white. Yeah. Because the majority of these companies, they're mostly white. The executives hmm. that are implementing these policies are almost uniformly white. Hmm. How does that change the so-called fact pattern? White on white discrimination versus white on black discrimination? Yeah. Well, it's a lot. I mean, obviously, it's a lot easier to to point it out when it's when it's cross white race, on, white on yeah. black, or yeah, 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 when it's cross race. But when it's when it's same race, it's it doesn't have quite the same. Uh, it doesn't quite pass the, the the eye test essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have to you have to you have to prove a little more. You have you actually have to show that they're implementing these policies. Because hmm. the you know the the automatic intuitive visceral reaction is if it's same if it's same race like well what's what's wrong with that, but but the case law actually is pretty clear that it, it doesn't matter who's doing the discriminating. The law says what it says. Okay. And is that, this is a big question, is what is the path from the original constitution and this anti-discrimination law? How did the government give itself the power to enforce uh, discrimination um, from, or did they invent something new that's not associated directly to the constitution? Like, how is this constitutional? Hmm. Uh, it, it involves the amendments. Okay. So, yeah, the, the yeah. amendments to the constitution where... The, the original Civil Rights Act was passed in 1866. And that's the federal law, Section 1981, that enforces racial, uh, that allows private entities, like regular citizens, to sue for discrimination in, in employment or in, in private contracts. So that was part of the 13th Amendment. Okay. And then after that, yeah, the 14th Amendment, equal protection, but that really applies only when the government discriminates. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, like we talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, that <clears throat> implemented Title VII, that prohibited discrimination by, by any employer, public or private. Okay. What's, what's the, what's the difference between an amendment and a title and thank you. And sorry that I'm, I'm kind of an oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So idiot here. the amendments, the amendments are like our bill of rights. Yeah. First amendment, freedom of speech, second amendment. That's all in the bill of rights. Uh, a title title seven was part of the civil rights act, which is something Congress passes as a, a statute or a law. So it, it's not part of the constitution. But it it essentially allows you to enforce parts of the Constitution. So what is it enforcing? It's it's it's, it's like an so it's an enforcement mechanism. Okay. Huh. So yeah. So section forty two USC nineteen eighty one is a, a coach section. So it's a statute, federal law, which allows you, which allows private individuals to enforce the 13th amendment so to speak it's an enforcement mechanism okay although although it's not it doesn't have to be directly tied into the constitution so 19 uh, civil rights act of 1964 it's 
it's also uh, incorporated into federal law. But you don't you don't need the Constitution to enforce it because it's between private entities. It just says private entities are not allowed to racially discriminate. Okay. Can can how does that? So, so it's not. How, it's not. Yeah, it's not part of the Constitution because it's not. It's not prohibiting the government from doing something. It's prohibiting uh, private entities or private citizens from doing something. But it's using the, the government to really, prohibit. Or it's it's enabling the government to prohibit private entities or, or interact between private entities. It it does yeah in in terms of dragging people into court yeah, so it's not. It's not necessarily the government doing it, although Title VII uh, does have an administrative enforcement arm, which is the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay, and that and that is the government. That 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 is a federal agency that can individually or separately bring discrimination claims against private companies. And does it do that? And how does it decide on which ones to do? Like who controls that? Who, who uses that lever of power? Uh, bureaucrats. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not necessarily saying that pejoratively, but the e the EOC uh, usually consists of lifetime government employees, or or, or many times longtime government employees, who are a, a lot of them are private lawyers. And they decide which cases they're going to take on, and they don't. They don't take on too many of them. Mm -hmm. I think it has to be. Usually, it's got to be a big fish, like a big company that is really blatantly discriminating. Okay. And the EOC has the power to come in and and, and enforce the anti-discrimination laws and make them uh, perform certain things or do remedial changes. Yeah. And change their policies. Okay. I'm just, I'm wondering this, this again, and I, I can't get my head around this because I'm such a, I'm such a, I don't really understand the whole mechanism, but how does the Supreme Court regulate or how does the constitution regulate the civil rights act? There's a pretty, I, I don't know to what degree it's accurate or truthful. I haven't read all the critiques of it, but it was a pretty powerful book for me to read. Uh, Christopher Caldwell's, uh, age of entitlement where he makes, he makes an argument that the civil rights act is our constitution and that the original constitution isn't our, we're living under two constitutions and the civil rights act. So I'm wondering, um, from your point of view, like how does, how does the civil rights act, how does it regulate? It, it seems like it regulates the country much more than, and, and it's an extension of the government much more than the constitution regulates the government. It's, it's the big fish in the room. It's what we're living under, not necessarily the constitution. So I'm wondering like, how do we restrain that? It seems like you're using that in order to mitigate or, or, you know, kind of try to even the playing field with regards to discrimination. I'm wondering, does the government, is it right or good for the government to be doing this um, at all? If it should be, given the power to, you know, and, but, and that brings up like, why do we have courts? Why do we have civil court? Why do we have the ability for one person to sue for damage against another person? And that seems like a good thing as long as it's adjudicated by rational, reasonable people. Yeah. I'm, I'm still processing Caldwell's theory on all this, but yeah. he has, I think he's on the right track. 
because we do we do have this overarching federal blob that like we we talked about before that it's made its way into every facet of of our individual personal private existence and the civil, we talked about the civil rights act allowed it to bring its tentacles uh literally everywhere and and in a certain way yeah there there is the original constitution which was ostensibly about personal freedom individual rights and since since fdr since those very broad supreme court decisions that commerce clause and put the put the federal government um inside your kitchen in a lot of ways yeah there there is the inconsistency that you know they thought for the the public good right for the moral good that we replace these core values of the original constitution with these new values of uh you know equality or equity if you want to call it that and being uh, being nice Mm. egalitarianism you know whatever yeah. you want to call it so mm. there is there is a conflict there and i i think it is a very important discussion to have which which underscores the importance of not only the legal first amendment but the cultural first amendment because a lot of these conversations were really not allowed to be had even though the government didn't do anything to stop them but culturally these were not conversations that you could have that allowed you to discuss the trade-offs of yeah. what happens when you do have this civil rights act which requires people to to treat each other uh, without regard for their race or anything like that with you know without calling people racial slurs dropping n-bombs at the office which i think everybody can can say is a positive yeah. but what is what is the downside what have we lost yeah. in terms of our own personal freedom with regard to that and i don't i don't have the answer yeah i don't think anybody has the answer but we we do need to to start that conversation because i'm i'm just in the trenches man i'm just yeah yeah, yeah. i'm just a dude like plugging away uh <laughs> with the tools i have yeah 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 <laughs> like all all i have is it, is this anti-discrimination law so i'm using it to expose and uh to dismantle what i think is a cancerous outgrowth in our culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but the greater question is you know if i had to if i had to lose my my livelihood because these laws were no longer in place is that is that a public good that that would be tolerable for me and if if the answer is that we go back to that original constitution a better place of individual freedom and things like that then fuck yeah hmm. i would i would much rather live in that place that is not heading towards the, the quasi-soviet place that i came from mm -hmm. um i can i can always do something else right yeah I, just, I think the prospect of going in this direction is a lot more is a lot scarier 
than me not having this tool. Well, yeah, and um, you're a resourceful guy, so I'm sure you'll figure out another way to um, involve yourself in the justice uh, uh, <laughs> That's, foray. You're giving me too much credit. <laughs> Appreciate it. it. It's one thing, you know. It's, it's one thing for the government to to tell you who you can serve, who you can't serve, and you know, it's I mean, it's one thing for the government to say you can't not allow a black person into your restaurant if your restaurant is connected to the public road. I, I understand that. It Once you kind of start thinking about, like, should the government be doing that or should people voluntarily do that? Should should there be a concerted effort by concerned citizens to change the attitude of other citizens to do that? Should the government be used to do that? Um, you know, and then and then you have uh, the other case with the gay cake. Like, should, should Christians be forced... Um, under penalty of uh, losing all a bunch of money or whatever, being punished by the government uh, you know, through civil courts to to celebrate or to you know be involved in you know producing a, a cake for something that they just don't agree with. Um, but then you know, uh, kind of like a little bit removed from that is like the freedom of speech. Uh, argument. If the government can tell me that I have to serve and treat everybody equally in my restaurant how what's to stop the government from telling me to say i have to treat everybody equally on the internet like do i have to at what point does it restrain the government from controlling my speech like if i want to uh, point out um you know inconvenient facts about a different race, you know, or like make speculations or like be kind of racist or sexist, you know, or, or transphobic or whatever. Like, you know, you see the, the civil rights industry, like creating more and more phobias to create more mm -hmm. and more, uh, things to fight discrimination because it's, uh, you know, again, people are always going to perpetuate the tools that they have. So is, is freedom of speech, qualitatively different than freedom of association? Is there really any difference between the government telling me who I have to serve and the government telling me what I can and cannot say about people based on their race? You know, can the government enforce that? And like, where's the line there? So I, I, I think you, you grasped on something intuitively. Uh, that's, that's right now is, I don't know if I call it a gray area, but it's it's an intersection or um, overlap in terms of anti-discrimination law and the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. That's what that that's what that recent uh, Supreme Court case about the the, the wedding uh, or the uh, yeah the cake or the the wedding photographer the web sorry the website lady yeah 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 the website lady. That's what that decision from uh, from you know, just recently. That's really what that was about. That was about taking back some of the space for freedom of association. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> and you notice that, that was, they they didn't go after a Muslim photographer. Like they didn't target a Muslim. They targeted a probably a white uh, Christian. They targeted the majority, and they got away with it until it went up went up to the Supreme Court. Just kind of the pattern of how this stuff works out again. Yeah, and and it's unfortunate because in a lot of ways the Supreme Court, ideologically, you can you can tell they're sort of uncomfortable with with how far these 
these laws or these, you know, quote unquote rights have expanded into private areas of life. You can tell that, but they're they're philosophically and they're principally constrained by not only case law, but by the constitution as well. And so kind of like me, what I'm doing, they're using the only weapon available, which was these religious freedom laws mm -hmm. or the, the freedom of association or freedom, uh, religious freedom part of the first amendment. Yeah. Because that's, that's the only tool available to bring, bring back or to constrain some of this expansion of these so-called rights. And the, one of the problems I saw with that decision is it, in a lot of ways, it discriminates because you have to have, you know, it, it only protects religious people. What if you're an atheist that has these that has these same beliefs? Why do you get why are you less protected than someone who uh, proclaims to be, you know, Christian or, or Jew or Muslim or things like that? But again, that's the unfortunate reality. That's the trade off, because the Supreme Court only has only has that that law that it can uh that it can rely on to make these claims but but the intersection there it's it's tough because logically speaking th there is there is a solid disconnect or that there is a logical segregation between the government being able to stop you from like you said being racist or sex whatever having bad ideas on the internet versus who you require to associate with as a business because as a business you're presumably within that stream of commerce oh wait hold on so if if i'm a podcaster i'm running a business my business is speech the government could make a argument that i'm growing wheat that is affecting the you know mm. like I'm, I'm doing something that that's affecting the market by being discriminatory if i ever were to be discriminatory right yeah well i i think it i think there is a there's a disconnect there because commerce really talks about products material things okay huh. and speech is yeah it it, it really entertainment itself to that actual like an actual physical product yeah versus versus well, I mean, just speech which digital photography uh you know like it like in 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 the case of this website that's just mm. digits it's just you know flashing lights it's not a physical product i guess they have to make a case i'm just saying like well, it's a it's it's i i get it no 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 yeah keep keep digging because that's it's a great point but there is a much <clears throat> there is a much greater base of precedent for okay. for speech and what's protected. So, so I can make the logical distinction. I think the Supreme Court lawyers can make that logical distinction between what you say, what your opinions are, regardless of whether it's on a podcast or on the street, versus selling a, a physical product or a material product certain services but but that that gray area does exist when when we talk about photography or art or anything like that or you know hey uh, you're a poet come you sell you sell poetry readings come read at my gay wedding yeah or my kkk rally benediction right yeah 
do a do a benediction at my yeah at my uh, all all right festival. So that's that's where that that's where that line yeah. uh, gets a little blurry. But again, I, I there is there is the distinction where speech is is really fundamentally protected by long line of precedent. Uh, although, like we've seen, logical boundaries are not really what they seem. If you read if you read some of the the, the Harvard affirmative action dissents. And by the way, the craziest thing about that case was the fact that it had to get to the Supreme Court, which pointed out just how obvious the numbers were so obvious, right? But it got rejected not not just by the trial court, but by the appellate court as well. On what grounds? So two Do they have to two say levels why? Of review. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. But two levels of review looked at those numbers, the ones that the Supreme Court said are just jarring. Right. Anyone with two brain cells to rub together would look at those numbers and go, you are intentionally engineering the racial makeup of your class. Yes. And, and by but, those but numbers, two, you're talking about like SAT scores, grade average, and then uh, and then how they are weighted for admission. Like Asians can, you know, they have to be way up here to even get considered. And, and you know, other races can be down here. That, that, but more so the fact that for a decade, well, yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely a huge part of it, but, but also the fact that Harvard kept the racial makeup of their classes almost identical for a decade. Like, think no about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Within, within a couple of percentage points for all the different races. Mm-hmm. How is that, how is that even feasible without, without engineering, without intentional engineering? Mm-hmm. But two courts looked at that and said, nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a threat is uh, logic logic and reason and all that stuff is very malleable. Yeah, exactly. Like, what is a woman? Uh, I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a scientist. And that's one of our justices now. It's not a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's that's kind of the, the threat we, we always have to look out for. Yeah. Is the threat to objective reality two plus two is four those things and power power does play a role in that Hmm. but i think first you have to rely on on ideals and principles okay okay so which is the constitution okay so ideals and principles so so to try to deal uh dig into what you were saying about the, the it was unfortunate that the court had a religious beliefs law to protect people from you know being sued for discriminating based on their beliefs. Um, and, and if an atheist has a belief, I know that Maya Forstater in, um, in Britain, she uh, took her company to court uh, because she was discriminated for believing that there are two sexes. So the, the science of biological science uh, of the distinction between male and female is, uh, according to that court, a belief, a protected belief. If you think that that's a problem, how would you, if you have any ideas, like how, what would be better language to describe um, or to protect people with regard to their freedom of association, their freedom of, of belief, if not belief, like then what, what would be a better term or, or, th- uh, you know, like how, how would we kind of clean up the law a little bit, update the law a little bit? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't require a 
a religious freedom. I wouldn't require a religious belief or or a religious requirement. Okay, so something has to be met, uh, defined as a religious belief in order to meet the requirement of being protected. Right now, yeah, right now that quasi-exception to anti-discrimination laws, that cutout is for for religious beliefs, for religious people. Religious exemptions. Same with uh, vaccine uh, mandates up, up here in Washington. Like religious exemptions were allowed. Mm-hmm. And they tried to strike strike that down. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very similar. So why why can't a person who has firm personal belief or yeah. uh, is philosophical holistic health? Yeah, yeah, philosophical holistic health, whatever. Why why are they not protected? And the the weakness of that is the only people that will be protected under under these laws are either people with sincere religious beliefs or people with sincere religious belief in the church of woke mm-hmm. because that yeah because that okay that's expanded to to a quasi religion yeah okay so what and, yeah what if people, harvard said it's our belief it's our firm religious belief that equity is is important for the you know the you know the, the outcome of mankind so therefore we are protected to discriminate because woke is our belief yeah. right there's no there really is no limiting principle here yeah and that's the problem hmm. and, and that's why that's why it it goes back to the original conversation should should people be free to associate without the government's involvement even if their association is morally distasteful in our eyes yeah which covers harvard discriminating based on race that would cover that too it would it would cover Smith College discriminating against Jody Shaw for violating their religious beliefs and and yeah. equity, right? Yeah. So that's that's our trade off. Yeah. Huh. Is are we are we willing to accept that rollback of those anti discrimination laws, uh, for the prospect of the individual freedom that we think will be a net positive mm-hmm. in that direction? Hmm. And where, if we do that, where, where does it all shake out? You know, you, a lot, some people philosophize that the reason we have all these woke corporations discriminating against, against white people is precisely because of these anti-discrimination laws, because they feel like they have to follow them, but now they're afraid of getting sued. So they want to, yeah, they want to take it to the extreme. Up the ante, uh, up I'm the not, ante, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case for the reasons I talked about before. I, I don't think the woke takeover of of all our institutions really is the result of the, the civil rights laws and the anti-discrimination laws and the fact that they're just afraid of getting sued. Uh, for, for me, that doesn't quite connect. Why not? Because <laughs> there's a more fervent belief system going on than just fear? Because because it's so, these practices and these beliefs are so universal, and they don't really match up with with the threat uh, of the lawsuit and the monetary losses. Because if you look at when these companies went woke, 
the time and how fervently they did it, it just doesn't match up to the threat of the lawsuit because it, some time ago, the Supreme Court basically rolled back a lot of the worker protections by enforcing arbitration agreements, which severely limit the the monetary recovery for plaintiffs who are suing uh, an employment case. Like they can't do basically they've eliminated class actions and things like that. OK. Which favored the big guy in aggregate. Yeah. Right. What's that? That favors the big guy uh, as opposed to the little guy. Uh, right. In aggregate, the the loss yeah, of those yeah. protections, yeah, okay, yeah, and the arbitration agreements they they favor corporations immensely. Mm -hmm. uh, just just the financial impact of that is huge. So if anything, these corporations really shouldn't even be that concerned about uh, anti discrimination suits. And the fact that this is happening in Europe too, where they don't have these similar laws, they don't have these similar threats. Mm -hmm. The <laughs> fact that uh, the the woke mindset is taking them over as well. Doesn't it doesn't jive with the idea that they're doing this purely based on fear of litigation? Okay, it's, it's something something else is going on. What do you think that is? That's something else. It's it's uh, well, I, I think it is the the thing that I was gonna that, that I was work trying to work out in the beginning with that. Uh, Kaczynski documentary. I, I think it's this idea of the erasure of boundaries and creating uh, a malleable person because whose who's favor does that work in? It's these, these giant conglomerates. And the bigger the corporation gets, if you think about it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a Soviet kohos, the, the collective farm. These corporations are no longer, they're not they're not capitalist enterprises anymore. Capitalist enterprises where a person owns a business and has a unique stake in the business's success. Now, all the people that run are so far removed, it's owned by you know shareholders, or now it's like the stakeholders. Or even uh, too big to fail a, holders. Yeah, 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 and it's it's just a collective farm where it just, it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want. And when you have that much power and that many resources and you're so closely connected to the gov government, you're basically running uh, a government collective farm. Mm -hmm. And and who does that favor? Well, was it Larry Fink, the BlackRock CEO, said that uh, the market wants um, wants totalitarianism. The market favors a totalitarian government because why? Because it's predictable, it's stable. Mm -hmm. And when you have a malleable consumer base and malleable employees, you essentially can do whatever you want. There's no threat of competition. There's no threat of anything. Hmm. You know, you're you're sitting pretty. Hmm. And and wokeness is directly tied into that. All those things, the the erasure of boundaries, it's it's critical theory, it's new world order, all those things, all those ideas. <laughs> you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Yeah. It's the person is no longer an individual who has core values. It's just a piece of clay mm -hmm. that, that you, yeah, you sell a can of pe Pepsi to hmm. by showing Kylie Jenner handing one to a cop. Yeah. 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 Or you sell an so education think, too. Yeah. Or whatever you're selling, whatever too. 
molding them. Yeah, okay. So I, I think that, to me at least, that's hmm. a more solid explanation for why it's going where it's going. And and in a lot of ways, to circle to circle back to the uh, individual rights, the original constitution, to Caldwell's new constitution, it it seems clear that one of them um, has has a more solid base, a more a more a more solid base that's more faithful to to the original founding to the original constitution. Mm-hmm. And so maybe maybe that is the answer. Well, yeah, it it, it seems like um, uh, it's a gl- you see a glimmer of it in in the uh, dissident right where when they when they get done with criticizing the whole power structure, then they're like, well, what now? What what do we do? And and you see this glimmer in a lot of in in the the liberals who are done with the critique, the post anti woke crowd. It's like, okay, this thing is this thing. What do we do? And uh, it does have like this tendency to kind of favor that Tocquevillian smaller communities voluntarily individual actors voluntarily coming together to, to do the good uh, for their own uh, place in their own time. And, and this kind of disconnection from the global mindset into more particular human sized life livelihood. And then the real diversity of being involved with uh, uh, directly with individuals and that collective culture that then arises and putting that first, putting, putting those ideals first um, and then allowing, you know, Kind of not not necessarily disconnecting from the system or or stopping critiquing the system or or you know like like kind of just removing yourself from the system, but standing apart from it, living life or putting your values and your attention into the pocket of real life that exists in this huge network of globalist technocratic capital. I mean, you could go the Kaczynski route, but I think that there is a more moderate like precedent in American life for, you know, kind of carving out like re, I guess, reinvigorating the American dream, like going for the private property, a good family life, a good community, um, that character that can't be necessarily um, controlled um, or even quantified by the technocratic system. Something that's almost invisible to that. I, there's definitely something to that. It's it's like my my favorite band, uh, Gogol Bordello. Like they say, it's think globally, fuck locally. <laughs> so I think, David, I, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, that that's. I think that probably nails it. And you know, maybe maybe we are idealistic and kind of dreamers for believing that's possible in such a technocratic globalist world uh but but it seems like the alternative is is much scarier which is like what like fascistic strongman caesarism or just uh the the, the technocratic yeah 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 Yeah. that thing that you were describing is is the is the counter to localized um individualized interaction and control. Mm So how can people, uh, what are some of the projects you're doing this summer and like, like cases, if you are allowed to, or want to talk about like particular cases that people can follow and, uh, connect with and, and learn more from, from your work and what you're doing on the ground. 
Yeah, I, th I think the best way is either follow me on on Twitter or um, or Instagram, and I'm both at Piv for Law, P I V the number four L A W, and I, I talk about a lot of my cases and just general insights on there. I think that's that's how we connected. Yeah. Wait. So Instagram? Do you do uh, do you do case law uh, like jury? Um, the, what, what like trial law and briefs? Is that what you do? Like get there with your hot bod and there's a bunch of pictures of you like arguing a case in front of a very woke jury or awoken yeah jury. yeah I, I i leave the uh, topless pics for the for, for just for stories okay <laughs> the disappearing stories uh but you'll see you'll see a lot of my cases you know where it were i'm on on tucker i was talking about my amex case i was just on jesse waters talking about my first amendment case where uh, i'm representing a, a gay teacher Hmm. who was who was disciplined for talking about transgenderism at a school board meeting oh at a school board meeting interesting yeah how was at he disciplined he should he said the wrong words or he disagreed with the prevailing attitude of that culture he yeah yeah he said he said basically biology is real hmm. and they took him they took him out of class and suspended him and didn't didn't let him didn't let him finish the school year or see his fifth graders graduate. Yeah, you know, yeah. When when we really look hard at that arm of of implementing justice, implementing anti discrimination, implementing values, like, do I really want to let it go? Because you see what's happening in Canada, like the people that are being plucked off and and being. Uh, disbarred or like just kind of thrown under the bus by so-called council culture in these professional uh, capacities of nurses and teachers and so on and so forth. They don't have any protection against that. But what we're protecting isn't some neutral ground. We're protecting a value. It's not just anti-discrimination because anti-discrimination does work in favor of one value or it works in favor of another value. It can work in favor of equity and it can work in favor of, of uh, colorblindness where we're actually have a positive value that we're using the laws to implement, right? Where we're, you know, the anti-discrimination isn't like a, it's not a neutral value. It, it goes in a certain direction or it was intended to go in a certain direction of equality. Yes. And then equity comes along and uses it towards its end. So it's just something that you just, that I was, you're making me think about is that this, this kind of neutral assumption of rationality of logic and, and, you know, of, of the good is not neutral. It's, it, it is based on a cultural time and a place and, and, uh, and, that is what we need to protect and, and reify when we use these tools. We're using it in that direction. 100%. Yeah. It's, it's trade-offs. It just goes back to trade-offs. And what is the greater evil? Is the greater evil that a person says something that may hurt someone else's feelings? Or is it the complete suppression of ideas and conversation and communications? And as a society, which one are we willing to tolerate? Hmm. Hmm. And I guess going back to the Civil Rights Act at the time, it seemed like the greater evil was hmm. not not allowing uh, black people or or anyone who wasn't white access to the same the same facilities and uh, the same 
benefits in a free society. That's at the time that seemed like the greater evil. And in the society and the culture that we're living in now, I think it's worth thinking about and talking about where where it's led us and right now what right now what's what's causing the greater evil. Hmm. Hmm. And that's a hot topic of debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's the tension and where the electricity is. So is there is there like a hero that you have uh, in in the, in the legal uh, land or like somebody you look up to, somebody that you you uh, this kind of like your mentor in a way, mm. like an intellectually, not necessarily somebody you know or uh, but somebody that you read, somebody that really inspired you to to go for justice in your life and livelihood. Yeah. Uh... You know, I can't. I can't point to one one particular person or one one thinker or individual where where I get my personal philosophy from. Uh, I I take from everyone. Mm. I mean, if we're just talking about like a, like a personal hero mm. or someone someone to aspire to, uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt is probably one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. Really, uh, even though even though yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of ironic because he was the kind of a great big government guy, sort of the first progressive mm. uh, to push to push a lot of these things through. But in terms of just a general human being mm. who who uh, really just was magnificent in, in terms of embodying greatness mm. and, and work ethic and just uh, a moral compass. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and just boundless energy. I, I think he was, you know, probably one of the, one of the greatest dudes that that's ever hmm. lived. I haven't seen like a modern biopic of him. I wonder why. It seems like he'd be a great study. Maybe Clinton He's, and Stewart yeah. would put something together. They did some. There, there was an okay one, I think, on PBS. Oh yeah. Okay. But but you want to you want to read Edmund Morris's uh, three book three book bio of him. When did you read that? Years Your back, formative years, more, yeah. More, not not that long ago, more than a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My formative years, I was just reading, uh, reading fiction. Yeah, like what science fiction, or like romance? Not really, novels? no, not really sci-fi. Just like regular, regular fiction. Uh, hmm. I was a literary guy. Oh, really? It's so like Barry Hannah, Raymond Carver, uh, okay. yeah. you know, Vonnegut. Yeah. Okay. And Stephen then, King before he before he lost his <laughs> he, mind before he went on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you how did you decide on law? Then was that a practical decision, or was there like kind of a calling kind of thing, like a a push, like an internal push? Yeah. Well, I found out my music career wasn't going anywhere. So yeah. It, Are there songs it, out floating there me, around, like like your it, old there, band? There might be. Yeah. Oh, you, okay. If you look around, there's an EP that <laughs> may or may not be floating around. I don't know. I haven't checked in a while. Hmm. But but it allowed me to utilize a lot of the same, well, a lot of the same skill sets. Mm-hmm. Although it it played more to my strengths, which which is reasoning, logic, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Thank it's you so much for more, your more analytical time david this has been a great conversation and it was interesting Thanks, to get man, yeah. into the weeds with you with regard to law again I'm, I'm not like totally on solid ground with that so i'm always kind of coming at it from a completely different like completely outsider 
point of view. Like what, how does this thing work? What are you talking about? So maybe it's a little interesting for you to kind of explain, explain it to a beginner um, and kind of guide me along the way, but it's a really important facet of the whole like cultural milieu and the culture war, um, like where it meets the road is through law. And what is that thing called law is something that a lot of us don't know about. We just kind of assume that it's based on something good, but it has to be constantly worked on um and and fought over i guess it's a field of contest yeah yeah and i appreciate it man because talking talking to lay people about it really makes me question my assumptions mm -hmm. and and rethink my assumptions about yeah what it is what does it do and why why is it there why do we have it this was yeah this was super insightful and helpful for me as well excellent I'm going to end the recording.